Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. We are in our first episode of 2022. It's a banger. And by banger, I mean uh, somewhat depressing and just like really heavy. This is a heavy one. Yeah, but but it ends with this kind of fresh start, which I feel like we all needed in 2022. So here's to you, Mike. Here's to all the listeners. Enjoy the episode. So we'll talk about a lot of our greatest hits, really. Uh, we'll we'll get into COVID. We'll get into Elizabeth Holmes. We'll talk about what's happening with Russia, um, with some other uh, other fun tidbits as well. But um, I would say this is certainly a fresh start for News and Brews in 2022, even if we're not all feeling our very freshest. Amen to that. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. Arrow, good to Mike, see you. Happy New Year. First show of 2022. First show of 2022. Uh, we're going to start out on a high note, at least in terms of um, the the high that I feel seeing you, not necessarily the content that we talk about. Yeah, this, this is going to be a really fun and morbid show because the first like <laughs> week and a half of 2022 has just been a kick straight in the nuts. You know, before we get to that, though, like I, I feel like there's a survival gradation that we need to analyze, uh, for the, for the holidays. Like, I feel like we survived, Mm. but I, but I don't feel like it was, um, that was survival was not a given. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it's like an extended treading of water. Yeah. Oh my, I mean, we're, we're going to get into all this in the show, so I don't want to preempt anything, but, um, I mean, the holidays were great. I was in no way prepared for the level of uh, stress and uh, kids always being there constantly and just general disruption to life as we know it that, uh, that we're now experiencing. Two, two things crystallized for me over the break. Um, one was that your point that you made in one of the episodes of late last year about cousin time mm. was just so spot on. Like my kids playing with their, uh, with their cousins. Um, it was like, they were just like filling up their tanks were filling up. It was really wonderful. And I hope that we can definitely do more of that, uh, in the future. And the second was that like, when kids are there, it's not a holiday. Like that's not, that's not a thing. And so I'm thinking about like, I'm going to be 40 in a few weeks and I'm thinking about like, what do I want to do? And like, part of me just wants to go sit on a beach with like nobody else there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cause I'm like, that's actually, that would be a holiday when, when your kids are there, even if you have help, like, which we did, we had grandparents there. Like, even if you have help, like you're always just kind of on being parents of, of little kids means that you don't really get a vacation. And that's apparently what we signed up for, Mike. You know, it's only like another decade and a half. We'll be okay. Yeah. It's like, I feel like I was reading something about kind of parenting while COVID this, uh, this week. And it was like, just get through this week. And we've been saying that for the last two years. And it's like, we're just going to say that for the next decade and a half. And it's going to be great. You know what? We're going to get into that article a little bit later on. So I don't want to get too much into it, but that specific point about just get through this week, there was a book and I don't remember exactly what book it was. It came out probably 10 or 12 years ago. And it was one of these kind of like pop science, uh, Malcolm Gladwell type, books. I don't remember exactly which one it was. It could have been Freakonomics. It could have been Tipping Point, whatever. Right. Um, but one of the, the stories they told was about a 
an officer in the U.S. military who was held in captivity in Vietnam or somewhere similar for an extended period of time and was one of the lucky and resilient ones who made it through and then developed actually a lot of research on resiliency and what it takes to get through hard times. And the combination that is required to survive an ordeal like that is undying faith that you will make it through Mm. without a specific timeline attached to it. So if you say, I just need to get to the end of the month and then I'm good, then the end of the month comes and you're not good, that over time will degrade your ability to continue surviving. But if you say, you know what? I'm going to take it one day at a time and keep getting through. That's the mentality that actually leads to successful outcomes. It's really, it's really interesting you say that actually, because I hadn't really ever connected the dots between sort of what we've been going through for the past few years in my time in Iraq. Um, mm. You know, I lived in Iraq for a year and a half and it would be kind of like this eight weeks on two weeks off type situation. And I felt like when I first got there, I was a hundred percent. And then I'd go down to like 75% and then I'd go on this, you know, cool two week vacation or something and I come back, but I'd never came back like fully loaded. It was like only back up to like 95%. Hmm. Well, then after a year and a half of doing that, you know, you're like, when you come back, you're only at like 50%. So I, I feel like that's maybe kind of what we're going on now is like when you do get this like small break or some sort of like reprieve or like you do make it through the week, you never get back up to where like you need to be. Yeah. On that um, note, I'm drinking today a, <laughs> a true respite week away, hazy India pale ale. This is from true respite brewery, which is a great Maryland brewery near and dear to my heart. And it's a lovely beer that is itself a little escape. You know, we're talking about some pretty heavy things today. And with each sip, it's it's kind of like I'm just, you know, chilling without a care in the world for that, like, split seconds. And I will point out that we are recording during the day. So the fact that you have a hazy IPA during the day is uh, really fantastic and uh, fully supported uh, by News and Brews. Excellent. What, what, and you've taken a different approach to brews. I, I have taken a different approach, uh, alas, an inferior approach. Um, <laughs> I'm drinking coffee about which I have nothing but positive things to say. You know, and, I don't, I don't think we're in a place to be criticizing coffee on this show. That's, that's <laughs> not what this program's about. No, it's not brews of all types accepted. Uh, this happens to be, uh, we have a Keurig machine where I am currently, and, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Craig machines just because of the waste involved in them. And so um, these pods are fully compostable hmm. and the coffee's fine. It's real strong, which is kind of the way that I like my coffee. Um, nice. But it kind of, when I throw away the pot, it makes me feel slightly less bad. Hard to get a real strong brew out of the Keurig machine. So yeah. more power to you. Yeah, it's good. What do you say? Shall we get into it? Let's get into the first round. Uh, 2022 has been uh, a brooding dumpster fire for all of us so far, it's safe to say, but no one more so than (laughs) Elizabeth Holmes. On January 4th, Holmes was found guilty on four counts of defrauding investors. And Elizabeth Holmes, of course, is the former CEO of Theranos, the uh, blood testing company whose trial uh, on various fraud charges we've talked about a bit on this show. Uh, There were three additional investor fraud charges on which the jury deadlocked, and she was found not guilty 
on four counts related to defrauding patients. Right. So I think my biggest takeaway from this verdict is it's just good to know that our criminal justice system is working uh, and working for the little guy, right? Don't think about the patients, but as long as you're the kind of person who invested in Theranos, you know, like two former secretaries of state, Henry Kissinger and George Schultz, two former secretaries of defense, Jim Madison, William Perry, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Oracle CEO, Larry Ellison, several high profile venture capitalists and the Walgreens company. Uh, the yeah, little law, guys. The law is on your side. Yeah. All little guys. Yeah. I, I say that half kidding, but like given the pedigrees of the people, this uh, young woman was supposedly hustling. The idea of due diligence and accountability should maybe come into play here at some point. Like there were plenty of venture capitalists and VC firms who passed on this investment for just that reason. Um, and, and that being said, I think legally this feels like it was probably the right outcome. Um, but it does mean that the, the big theoretical distinction that I was holding going into this trial, that for things like, you know, if you're, if you're a software company and you're selling vaporware, right? Features that haven't been built yet, things that are in the roadmap, maybe you're in the vision, but aren't real. Are those called vaporware? Vaporware. Yeah. Is that like a, that's like a Silicon Valley term? Like a, a term of art. I've never um, heard that before. But that that's a different thing than being a medical startup. And then it's called selling snake oil, right? And that's not okay. <laughs> um, but but that, that distinction ultimately, because she was found not guilty on all the patient-related charges, that distinction didn't really mean anything. Yeah. Culturally, there's the question of, you know, does, does this episode change anything about Silicon Valley culture, about the hard charging mm-hmm. visionary founder with a lot of charisma who's yeah, fake it till you make it, et cetera. Right. I don't really think so. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not to say that Silicon Valley culture isn't changing, but it's not because of this particular verdict. Right. I think things like the tech lash, right. The overall dimming of, of tech's star in the popular imagination is more significant. I think the broader awakening of class consciousness and what that means for venture capitalists and, and the perception of them is, is more meaningful. I think the overall just generational shift is more meaningful. And I think moving to a higher interest rate environment is actually more meaningful. Venture capital and by extension, you know, this, the world of startups has been kind of frothy for like the last 10 or 15 years because we've been at or near zero interest rates, which means that investors are chasing yield and it's very hard to find. And so riskier assets that are non-traditional like startups uh, can, can seem more attractive. If mm. we, as, as we expect, and we'll cover this in a later episode, if we start seeing rate hikes from the Fed that will likely have to go higher than we've seen in, in recent memory uh, to tame inflation, then more traditional asset classes, the equity market, uh, the bond markets start to look much more attractive. And, um, and, and that, that could have implications structurally for venture capital and for tech that, um, that we just, we're not used to. Yeah. I mean, when the cost of borrowing money goes up, the tolerance for risk goes down. Mm-hmm. I, I have a confession on this whole Elizabeth Holmes Theranos thing. This has Go been, on. <laughs> this has been like a side obsession of mine. Um, and it's so funny because I know nothing about like, tech or blood testing or anything. And I have been listening to the dropout, this podcast, one of many podcasts that's been following this story uh, by ABC. Hmm. And the, the, so I listened to this podcast a few years ago, just to understand. I also listened to 
things like the one on on WeWork. It was called We Failed. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in these kind of like tech failure stories, but again, mostly from like a personal uh, perspective. But this one, when they started the trial, it was just like the the law and order part of my brain just like dinged like that sound, and I just couldn't stop listening to this. And and I mean the the podcast was kind of ridiculous because they just had like two or three experts or legal, you know, lawyers or whatever talking about what was going on, but then they were like reading the transcripts of what was mm-hmm. happening. So like there was an hour long episode, but it was really just like the highlights from whatever that week's proceedings were. And it was fascinating. Like the the fact that she decided to testify on her own behalf was like not a given apparently. And everybody, these experts thought it was a bad idea. I mean, I just like watched this thing like a hawk. So I I'm glad you told the story because I was much more interested in your take on like the impacts of uh, on Silicon Valley. But um, yeah, that's my confession. Well, is, is there anything big or interesting that I missed in that? It was interesting how little the patient side of this was brought up in the case um, hmm. because from a legal standpoint, it seemed like the defrauding investors piece was a much more like provable thing. And I think this is less an indictment of Elizabeth Holmes than it is our legal system. Yeah. Like there, there are fewer protections for the little guy to use your analogy and many more protections against fraud to people like investors. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what they, that's, I think what the government, the, the prosecutors realized early on is like, it's, it's much more easily provable. Like they had this one taped investor call where like Elizabeth Holm was like spouting all of this nonsense about battlefield deployment of Theranos's, you know, whatever. And, hmm. you know, just basically like lies. And she was using, she was obfuscating by using this, like, well, you know, we are in the process of, and like, we will soon be able to as a, but she was like making it seem like this was like a thing that was happening. Hmm. And all of it was just like smoke and mirrors. Vaporware, snake oil. Yeah. Vaporware and snake oil. I just, vaporware. It's a great, great thing. <laughs> I wanted to move us on to the former Soviet Union because I feel like we've talked about Russia before, but there's two sort of Russia-related or Russia-adjacent stories that were pretty big, um, not just- Yeah, there's the been a week. lot happening. I think a lot of us it just between the holidays and getting kind of rocked by the disruption of the first week uh, back in the new year. Like this has been such a prominent story that just, I don't think has quite risen to a lot of people's consciousness or, you know, in any level of detail. So I'm very, very much looking forward to your breakdown here. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I, I think we've talked about Ukraine on the podcast before and, and this like amassing of Russian troops. Well, you know, spoiler alert, they're still there. And so much so that the US and the Europeans and NATO are, are really worried about this, this troop buildup. And so the, I guess I'll start with, with that uh, because there's some important meetings going on in Europe uh, this week. So to recap, despite Putin's assurances that there is uh, no reason to fear an escalation of tensions with Ukraine, uh, pretty much everyone including the people that I talked about, fear and escalation of tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and I feel like that's an evidence-based fear because there are over 100,000 Russian troops amassed on the Ukrainian border uh, for, for no real good reason. 
it's worth noting that you know this this assurances by Putin and his lackeys that there's nothing to fear and that they're not going to invade could also like in their minds be true because in in 2014 Russia also invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea you know if, if we say Crimea pro- people probably remember this and but they never admitted that they talk about Crimea as like oh that was a um you know, that was a, a domestic separatist Ukrainians who like wanted to be more aligned with Russia. And so there was this armed, you know, resistance that led to kind of like a, a open referendum that, you know, led to Crimea's annexation by Russia and all sorts of other kind of air quote necessary things. But they never admitted that it was like Russian troops that were there. And so what they could be doing again is, I mean, it's it's very clearly Russian troops on the border, but like there's nothing stopping these folks from like taking off their uniforms and just like crossing the border and going and like posing as Ukrainian separatists again. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of one of the nuances that I think gets gets lost some here. But this week we're talking about it in particular because there's sort of three meetings, two of which have, have already happened or are in the process of happening as we record on Wednesday. Uh, Earlier this week, there were some talks between U.S. and Russian officials at sort of the deputy secretary, deputy foreign minister level, uh, which is which is really high. Um, That's that's a really senior level engagement uh, in Geneva. And I would say the stances can be boiled down to like Russia doesn't want Ukraine and Georgia to be in NATO and the U.S., and its allies, Europe and, uh, and and NATO, don't want Russia to invade Ukraine, Georgia, et cetera. Um, and they just like were pretty much at a complete impasse here. Like they they didn't agree. And as I was, you know, just before we were recording, I was looking into this again. And it's like talks are probably going to break down. They're all civil, you know, like. Nobody's throwing spitballs at one another or anything, but but it's not uh, apparently going anywhere because Russia is like holding fast on this like NATO. You have to promise that Ukraine will never join NATO, and it's like the U.S. is not going to make that promise. Right, and, and the NATO position is that that's essentially an infringement on the sovereignty of Ukraine, right? And frankly, on NATO's ability to make its own decisions for itself. Yeah, exactly. And you know, is is NATO worried about Russia? Like. Absolutely. Like that's one of the whole points of, of NATO. And so, you know, them decreasing their presence in Eastern Europe is kind of a non-starter. So I'm glad that they're talking, but I'm not sure that there's going to be much progress, even with the other two meetings I mentioned there's, so they've been in Geneva with the Americans, then they're going to uh, Brussels to meet with NATO itself. And then there's um, a meeting with the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe or the OSCE mm-hmm. uh, in Vienna uh, later this week. And so nobody expects this to like result in a, in like some sort of like peaceful solution, but, but at least they're talking. One thing that I've been curious about this, I'm wondering if you have a take on it, is NATO is one thing, but the EU is another thing entirely. And in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, it wasn't NATO that was looking at expanding. It was new leadership in Ukraine that was much more friendly to the EU, specifically in looking at closer economic ties. Do you have any sense or thoughts on sort of Putin's level of concern 
with military threats versus softer measures of power like economic ties? I think he's opposed to both. I mean, I, I think it's very clear that when there was like the orange revolution in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, it, which was a sort of pro West or pro EU anti-Russia kind of leader re- rose to the, to the top. And, you know, that person ended up being poisoned. Um, and really Ukrainian politics has been in turmoil because Russia keeps wanting to instill kind of a pro Russia leader in Ukraine. So I, I think he's worried about both. I think he is, um, most energized about the NATO thing um, just because I think he sees himself as a military commander. And so like mm-hmm. the military threat is sort of a, a greater one. I don't know, greater attack on his manlyhood. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a dark place inside Putin's head. So I try not to go there. Too <laughs> Let's well. not go there for too long. <laughs> but yeah. I, so in addition to Ukraine, there's, there's Kazakhstan, which um, has been, really in the news. And, and I, I had to say a colleague of mine reached out last week and was like, oh, you know, have you seen what's happening in Kazakhstan? And I like was still coming out of the fog of the holidays and um, have to admit, I, I hadn't. Um, I know where Kazakhstan is. Um, mm-hmm. It's in Central Asia. For those that don't know, it's a huge country. It's four times the size of Texas, which mm-hmm. makes it about a third of the size of the U.S. It's only got 19 million people. Texas has 29 million people. Um, and it's a former Soviet Republic and it's, I I would say most, um, known or perhaps important because of it's just seemingly endless reserves of oil and gas. So it it exports oil, gas, and Borat. And there is also the Borat factor. Yes. Which apparently Kazakhstan hated for, I don't know why they, I could, I could see, I could see hating that. Yeah. I don't know why they hated it. Yeah, that, that makes sense from Kazakhstan's <laughs> perspective. But that, it's that oil and gas, actually, that brings us to kind of what's going on now. And so on January 2nd, there were these protests that uh, on, on rising fuel prices. So as you can imagine, in an oil-rich and gas-rich place, there's been subsidies on, on oil and gas for, for everyday citizens. And that kind of was starting to be lifted, or at least for whatever reason, prices were going up. And people were very unhappy about that. And then that unhappiness quickly grew to just unhappiness at the authoritarian government in Hmm. Kazakhstan. And so as these things tend to do, it sort of the protests metastasized into kind of all out, you know, we are unhappy with our government and want change. So the government tried to be responsive. They, They fired a couple ministers. They put a cap on the fuel uh, prices and and they tried to like address the the symptoms rather than the underlying cause, which was you know disgruntled uh, people at, at their leadership, mm-hmm. which of course was not okay. Like the the overall change in leadership was never on the table for the Kazakh government, and so these kind of protests were happening. The Kazakh government was responding with increased virulence and violence to the protesters. And so they got worse and more violent and that these things just kind of spiraled out of control. And this essentially led to Kazakhstan and the, and the Kazakh president asking for help from this obscure uh, organization called the Collective Security Tree Organization, which if you know what NATO stands for. It's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The CSTO was created in the early 2000s 
um, and is a Russia-led military alliance of six ex-Soviet states. It's never done anything. It's been in existence before this. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. Um, But apparently you can, you know, call upon this, you know, treaty organization and troops can be sent. So Russia sent about 2,500 troops to, uh, to Kazakhstan and partly with their help and, and because the government deployed their own soldiers to, to quash dissent, dissent was thoroughly quashed um, by now. And in, including by, and this is sort of really messed up, uh, you've heard of the blue helmets, like the UN peacekeepers? Yeah. Yeah. And so apparently one of the divisions of the military units that the Kazakh government sent to like quash dissent was given a shoot to kill order by the president. And they were all wearing blue helmets. Yikes. Um, no UN paraphernalia, uh, apparently, but still like the most obvious, like same mm. color blue helmets. It was really kind of messed up. But yeah, so as of as of today, as of recording, um, the violence has largely stopped. And there's even talk of the Russian troops going home, which means that we're now truly in the the roundup anyone who disagrees with us and call them foreign back terrorists stage mm-hmm. of this and and i heard that yesterday the authorities had detained like 1700 people already this week or something so this is wow. not boding well for for the protesters or quite frankly anyone who is opposed to the Kazakh government and this is this is the first time that a former soviet republic has called in russian troops under this treaty organization right under this treaty organization, my understanding is yes, because like you and me, nobody ever knew the existence of this damn thing. Um, <laughs> I think quite honestly, I think it was like they wanted help from the Russians. And this was like a perhaps more like internationally palatable way of asking for help rather than like, hey, big bro, can you send some troops? Which yeah. is like de facto what ended up happening anyways, but whatever, window dressing. Interesting. We'll, we'll keep an eye on this one because uh, things are getting volatile over there. We, we've, t- we've been talking a lot about Eastern Europe. Yeah, I feel like for a while I was wondering if action movies were going to like switch to like Chinese bad guys and, and maybe some did, but like... No, they can't because China owns the theaters. Oh, that's fair. Although in Chinese action movies, it's, it's usually like a, an American bad guy. Um, yeah, but we're, we're not going to blackball them, so... <laughs> But yeah, I think because of that and because of, you know, the continued awfulness that is the Russian government, I think we're, we're bound to have, uh, you know, Rocky style Russian bad guys uh, for a while. Yeah, it'll keep those old Bond movies relevant for a while, which is nice. You got to look <laughs> at the upside of these things. I did watch the new Bond movie. Have you watched it? Oh, I haven't. Is it good? It's I'm not going to tell you anything about it. It's it's good. And it's also, it's, it's worth watching for sure. Especially okay. if you're like, I'm a fan of the Daniel Craig bond. I, I think he was a good bond. And if, if you have followed his kind of character arc, this ties up a lot of the previous movies as well. Um, great. Great. We'll check it great. out. I'll check it out. So should we, should we shift from the resurgence of authoritarianism in the former Soviet Union to the collapse of democracy in the U.S.? Great, great bridge. This last week was also the one-year anniversary of the violent insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, otherwise known as January 6th. And I I would say, I don't know what I was expecting out of this, Mike, uh, and I'd welcome your thoughts on like expectation versus reality, but like 
what ended up happening was it just showed how like continued, like we're, we continue to be so divided as, as a country, at least in terms of like who is loudest, but, but it still seems like there are entire, not just like loud mouth parts of the internet and, and talking heads on TV that are skeptical of what happened on January 6th was, I don't know what there is to be skeptical of. We all saw it on upteen, you know, social media streams, but like there's this continued kind of reticence to acknowledge the importance of that attack on our democracy. And that from, from basically one, I would say a sizable majority of, of one side of the political equation. And that's, that to me is pretty troubling. I mean, what has basically happened is Fox news and it's ilk have Johnny Cochran, the voting populace in the U S into just having enough reasonable doubt that this was like a serious thing that you have independent voters, you know, across the country, just really wondering, like, was it that bad? It seems like things went back to normal pretty quickly. It seems like the immunities kicked in and, you know, Donald Trump's out now and the Capitol's all cleaned up and the national guard went home. Like if people have short memories and, uh, I, I think and the that, glove didn't even fit on Donald Trump's hand. Right? Yeah. It must've been like a baby size glove. <laughs> um, it wasn't necessarily a realization for me that we are divided as a country because that has been sort of obvious every day, constantly so much as the real failure of communication of the left and including the administration on articulating the stakes of January 6th and yeah. the movement leading up to it. And you know who honestly has been really the only group or demographic kind of sounding a consistent drumbeat on this has been like the Lincoln Project, uh, sort of former Republicans or estranged Republicans who are anti-Trump uh, and really don't have a political home right now. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a good podcast called Politicology that the, the Lincoln Project produces. Um, where they bring on a lot of people who fit that demographic and some others from across the political spectrum, um, but always like sharp political analysts. And they are talking about this stuff week in, week out, multiple times a week, stakes of the threat to our democracy. And yeah. I don't think even most of the Democratic Party has really internalized it at that level. Um, but what I think has been encouraging in the last week since the January 6th anniversary is that you are seeing a change of tone and you are seeing much more consistent communication about the threats to democracy and the necessary responses to it. Not clear if that will be sufficient to actually solve any problems at this point, but, uh, but what, what have you been seeing in terms of the, the leadership and policy response to that? I think that shift that you've seen in the past week started with President Biden's anniversary speech at the Capitol, which I think speaking personally, was one of his strongest moments of his presidency. I think he is sort of seen as this great negotiator and great conciliator and, you know, just sort of, you know, Uncle Joe or whatever, but he was strong and he was mm -hmm. unequivocal in his rebuke of not only the former president, but every politician who still buys into this big lie. So I, I think it was honestly one of the strongest points. I mean, he he talked about how democracy was attacked, uh, which it was. 
Um, and he took direct, he never said his name, but he took direct aim at Donald Trump, who he called a defeated former president. And I think one of the parts that I thought was really telling was he basically made it clear that despite being this person who was inclined towards bipartisanship and negotiation, that he had no interest in negotiating or even dealing with Republicans who still have tied their political futures to the big lie and to the former president. Um, and, and he was actually asked about this. I mean, it was, it was combative. It was, you know, he was, it was forceful, mm-hmm. which I think was merited on such a dark anniversary. And he was asked later by a journalist about the kind of divisive nature um, or, or perceived divisive nature of his speech. And, and I thought his answer was really good. He, you know, they were essentially asking like, did this speech do more to divide than did to heal? Mm. And he said, um, the way you have to heal, you have to recognize the extent of the wound. You can't pretend this is serious stuff. So the inclusion of the word stuff means that it's definitely a Biden quote. But in all seriousness, I think, you know, he's sort of realizing that you can't just move on from this. Like you have to actually address it. And like the Lincoln Project and Liz Cheney and others are doing, like, you have to be talking about it and, and like coming to terms with the fact that this is a very real part of our uh, democratic experiment that that's sort of being threatened right now. Yeah. It's um, why even having a press conference, if you're not asking about tone, uh, glad <laughs> that we got that one in there. I think that Biden laid a bit of a trap for himself on this one in terms of coming in and pledging to be the unity candidate bridging divides when you have an entire half of the political system that's just not interested in even starting that conversation and living in a total alternate reality right now. Um, and so he, he has opened himself up to that critique of this doesn't feel like we're moving toward unity, but they had no choice. I mean, and, and what's encouraging to me is that it wasn't just that one speech, but it has kicked off a renewed push for voting rights right. uh, legislation in the Senate. Uh, it has kicked out, you know, Biden gave another major speech on Tuesday of this week about voting rights specifically in Georgia, and that there is real action tied to it. Uh, again, not clear uh, what, if anything, is going to sway people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema uh, on that. But um, the fact that there is a concerted push and that, you know, despite not having passed Build Back Better yet and still needing to make that push on the, the policy agenda, um, that there is a real concerted focus on, on voting rights and on democracy strengthening. And it, it's not just limited to one bill either, right? So Sundar Ramanujan, friend of the pod, uh, has flagged a couple of uh, really development of the story over the last couple of weeks of some alternative bills that are working their way through the Senate that seem to have bipartisan support or at least the potential for it that may not go as far on voting rights reform as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or, or some of the other legislation that's out there, but would close the, uh, the loopholes and, and the vulnerabilities that were exploited by Trump and his team following the 2020 election to just throw everything into chaos culminating in January 6th. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a midterm year, 2022, and it, it makes me think that whereas last year was sort of COVID economic recovery infrastructure, they may still try to do the Build Back Better infrastructure thing. But I think this year, at least as 
so far is starting out to be the, the year of protecting voting rights. Um, I think that there's going to be significant headwinds, not just from the Republican Party, but like you said, from Manchin and Cinema uh, on, on some of this stuff. But I think if they put the full force of the White House behind this, and this is their priority, and they, you know, cajole and encourage and muscle people towards this, then I think it's not only a, a good thing for our democracy, it's probably also a wise thing politically for them to do in, in a midterm year. Um, and, and we have to remember, yeah. like, after the midterms is usually when the next presidential candidates announce themselves, which could include the former president. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like the year of talking about voting rights, which is a good first step. Um, <laughs> Mike we'll, the skeptic. We'll <laughs> well, as you know, I'm a fan of uh, fixing things by just talking about them only. Um, I just don't know if that works as well uh, for a president as it does for a podcast host. Yeah, well, hope springs eternal. Talking about its first step. One, one more first round story, and this I think is a good transition um, because it just to me is, you know, we, we just talked about uh, January 6th. We're going to talk about COVID as our main story. This to me is, is the best summary of where we are. So uh, Jim Green, who has been NASA's chief scientist for several years, retired at the end of 2021, and he gave an interview to the New York Times. And in this interview, Green advocated missions to explore the idea of terraforming Mars to make the climate able to sustain human life, and even considering doing the same for Venus. And so what we, this means this is NASA's top scientists looking around at Earth and where we are and saying, you know what might be better? Venus. Getting the fuck out of here. Where the surface temperature is 900 degrees hot enough to melt lead. That's <laughs> fair. Uh, maybe some billionaires will get on the case. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the main story. Let's do it. We were all hopeful, I think, as of, say, two weeks ago, that uh, 2022, the third year of the pandemic, would be the best one yet. Seems like a long time ago, two weeks ago. Those hopes are quickly fading. <laughs> so <laughs> to recap where our conversation has been in mid-December, which was the last time we recorded a podcast almost a month ago, which is crazy. Uh, but we held out hope that the combination of a milder variant in Omicron plus swift approval of the vaccine for kids under five, plus oral antiviral treatments coming online from Pfizer and Moderna, plus, you know, nimble shifts in messaging and guidance from the CDC uh, and other public health leadership would start to shift us from pandemic mode, where we are constantly freaked out about being exposed and, and catching the virus and what that might mean, to endemic mode, where it's more like the flu or the common cold. It's a virus that still exists and is out there, but not one that we let uh, really run our lives because the risks are not great enough to do that. And we were sort of hoping for a transition, like a smooth, gentle, you know, like if you're driving at night over cobblestones and you reach a stretch of smooth pavement, mm. that's sort of a transition. Instead, Which I don't know why we were thinking of that. Like no, nothing about this pandemic has been cobblestones to smooth. Listen, listen, we're allowed to hope. That's not against the rules. <laughs> what we've got instead 
is, is I think we can feel that something is changing. It does feel like we are in a phase shift in the pandemic, but instead of that, like cobblestones to pavement, it's like someone just shot out our headlights and all the streetlights and we're still going. It's fair. And that's to say that like some good stuff has happened, right? So Paxlovid, Pfizer's insanely effective antiviral treatment did get emergency authorization from the FDA. Uh, Pfizer has also increased its production estimates for 2022 from an initial target of 50 million in November, which they then last month increased to 80 million. And as of this week, Pfizer CEO says they are now targeting 120 million treatments in 2022. And they're already deploying these treatments in hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. okay. In addition, Omicron does still appear to be milder than Delta uh, and other prior variants with a lower hospitalization and death rate. At an individual level. Yeah, well, and, and at a population level, even, right? The, the, right? the percentage of Omicron patients requiring hospitalization or uh, dying is lower than prior variants. Right. But, but. <laughs> lots of bad stuff, too. Lots so, of butts. Uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine trials for kids under five have both been extended and essentially delayed. Uh, we are now looking at springtime at the earliest to be able to vaccinate young kids. Uh, Did you hear I, that sigh? That that yeah. was like a big sigh. Yeah, that's that's the theme this week. Um, I do want to plug the article you referenced earlier in the pod, which is Jamie Green's Slate article called The Agony of Parents with Kids Under Five. Yeah. Get in the show notes. But I think I saw you share this, Errol. Um, I then reshared it because it was just extremely spot on and kind of yeah. putting voice to a lot of feelings that I've been having. Um, one nugget from that is that 5.7% of the U.S. population is under five. Uh, and so that, that means that you know, you've got this 5.7% that can't get vaccinated. And that probably means that 15 or 20% of households have a member in them who cannot be vaccinated right now. That's, I mean, that's wild. Um, I also, you mentioned like feelings. I feel like a lot of the articles that I've read, especially about parenting in COVID uh, lately have been about kind of like, we don't have answers. We just have like a lot of feelings. And, And so there was actually another article. So the Slate one was the most widely shared one. There was actually one in a website called romper.com, which I didn't Hmm. know was a thing, entitled Omicron means parents are doing it all over again, except this time dead inside. (laughs) I did see that headline. That was spot on as well. Um, I mean, both of them have these like, it's sort of like they're written really well, really well. And then there's like anger. And in the slate one, it's like italicized anger and like <laughs> profanity. Well, and I was like, uh, Ezra Klein wrote an op-ed a couple of days ago, who himself is just back from paternity leave, um, wrote an op-ed a couple of days ago, looking more at a, a data-centric approach, but looking at this disparity we're seeing in survey results between people's assessment of their own personal economic well-being and their assessment of the economy overall. Oh, interesting. I didn't see this one. And the point he was making was people, if you ask them, will generally say, I'm doing okay economically. You know, there's been a lot of government support, the economy and hiring have been quite strong. It's probably the best labor market maybe ever, honestly, right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, that if, if you ask them for their, their sense of how the economy is going overall, that the numbers really haven't improved much since the depths of the early pandemic. Yeah. And the, the explanation that Ezra Klein offers is that um, even though economic activity is happening, 
everything is just so disrupted. And this sort of goes to like the social psychology angle that we've talked about a lot on this show, Yeah. right? Even if you're able to go to the store, you're wearing a mask, you're seeing people without masks, that's making you anxious. You are, you know, brushing up against someone and feeling anxious about that, whatever it may be, right? There's this week, this there's pall. no produce on the shelves. Right. There, there's this pall Supply over chain. everything we're doing in the economy, even if we're able to go out and interact in it. And so that ultimately, and, and that, again, goes back to the point we've made several times, like the economic situation, the inflation, people's perception of how things are going, none of it can change until we're through, through the pandemic. Yeah, or at least until we're in the endemic stage, um, as you said. Right, which is, yeah, synonymous. And so so anyway, the under five vaccine prospects have worsened. Omicron's infectiousness means that pretty much everyone is getting exposed to it, right? Everyone is, is around it. Um, and even though the lower percentage of people who get it are getting hospitalized, hospitalization numbers overall are at all time highs across the country. Right. This makes sense, right? Like if more people are getting exposed, more people are getting it, then you're going to have just more people like the law of large numbers says that, you know, the more people you have, essentially the, the more cases you're going to have, even if it's on a percentage basis, it's lower. Like if you've got four times the number of cases, even if they're 25% you know, less, you're going to have the same number of, of hospitalizations. Right. Right. And then, and then we talked about the public health communication guidance from the CDC has been like a riddle from the Monty Python bridge keeper. Right? <laughs> it's been like the, the internet's favorite meme. Answer like. me these questions three. <laughs> like we'll, we'll get to the specifics of that in a minute, but just, just to say that like that has not been helping this smooth transition. That's a great Monty Python, uh, <laughs> so so how bad is it uh nobody fucking knows <laughs> this combination of extreme transmissibility lower virulence and the difference between overcron severity in vaccinated versus unvaccinated people means that basically none of the metrics we've been using to track the pandemic mean anything anymore to anyone it's not just the metrics it's like the way of thinking about covid that, that we've had, right? Like you right. get infected and then a certain number of those people get infected, go to the hospital, a certain number die. Like that's just like not actually. Well, and, but like what, what are, what are our indicators? Like what, how are we supposed to know how good or bad things are at any moment? Like uh, I think you, you noticed that the, the death rate has been kind of diverging, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I saw a headline, I think it was from Newsweek or something that was like the COVID death rate is at a record low at the same time that cases are at an all-time high. Right, right. And so case counts are higher than they've ever been. Uh, And with so many more people testing at home, probably more undercounted than they've ever been as well. So you see that, that, you know, the the y-axis on these case count charts has had had to be revised up. But like the hospitals... The hospitals that test everyone who's coming through the door are reporting like 40 to 60% positivity rates, which yeah. is way off the charts that even exist now. Yeah. Um, now, the, the upside of this is that it means the percentage of people with Omicron requiring hospitalization is probably even lower than the numbers indicate. Right. Um, and it means that the, the disease will likely run its course faster because so, more people are getting infected. Just to double click on that point a, a second, it's like 
you, you mentioned this, but just so we're clear, people are showing up for other reasons to the hospital and everybody's getting tested at the hospital. And so many of those 40 to whatever percent are testing positive. So they're not going to the hospital for COVID. Uh, right. Right. Which means that not only are the case count numbers meaningless, the hospitalization numbers are increasing meaningless as well. Right. Because you have all these people in the hospital for like a broken arm who happen to test positive and maybe asymptomatic, but now that is a person hospitalized with COVID. Yeah. 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 Oh, again, it's, this is getting back to your kind of be wary of data visualization and like, you know, presentation of data. I feel like this is very much in that realm. And, and of course, you know, the CDC uh, is not, particularly helping. And then even even deaths, which should be like a very straightforward kind of binary metric and and have not spiked in a significant way, at least not yet, they still could. But it's not really totally clear what that metric means anymore either. There's there's been at least some confusion sown there. So Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, announced the results of a study this week that showed 75% of vaccinated people who died from COVID had at least four comorbidities, meaning they had four other illnesses or ailments uh, that made things worse and and contributed to the severity of their their, uh, cases. Now, importantly, this study was only looking at people who were fully vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, So just reinforcing basically the metrics and and the information we've gotten over the last year that says, if you are fully vaccinated, your risk from this disease of death is extremely low. Yeah. However, the soundbite was taken by, uh, you know, uh, smart people acting in good faith, like Donald Trump Jr., uh, <laughs> to suggest that, uh, uh, taken out of context, you know, that context about this only looking at fully vaccinated people entirely removed to suggest that everyone's concern about COVID is totally overblown. And, you know, this, this whole thing has been a hoax from the beginning. So that's, that's helpful. Yeah, super helpful. Also, I, I remembered one of the things that, just really landed like a thud with me from that Slate article you mentioned was there's so many people who are like, well, this is a pandemic now of the unvaccinated for, for all the reasons you Mm -hmm. said, you know, like vaccinated people are lower risk, et cetera. But like our kids are under the age of five. (laughs) Right. And so like, sure, you can be mad at people who choose to be unvaccinated, but those those people who happen to be little people in mine in your household are not choosing to be unvaccinated. Right. So it's a, if it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, like shit, it's still a pandemic of the unvaccinated, two of whom live in my house. Yeah. Yeah. I think Biden around the start of the year had sort of a misguided speech section where he talked about like, a winter of death and misery for anyone who's unvaccinated. And it was just like, dude, come on. Yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> but they're so cute on Instagram. So because nobody really knows how bad this is right now, and because we don't really have a light at the end of the tunnel for when we'll be able to vaccinate our kids, the current surge is just hugely disruptive to life. Yeah. Right. Like shades of March, 2020, um, to your point, like uh, with the only difference being that we're all dead inside now. Um, but are your kids virtual now? Are you, no, they, uh, they, they were out, uh, they were both out basically the entire, uh, first week of, of the year, uh, which was a combination of snow and Omicron really, it was actually mostly snow. Um, and I actually have spoken to some teacher friends and and some other folks around the education system who think that was a blessing because you then had anyone who was exposed over the holidays 
having that yeah. extra week to quarantine and isolate and just not have sort of the, the risk of, of being around other kids. Um, yeah. I mean, ta- tangent alert here, but like, so my preschooler is still at home so much so that we had to import. We were fortunate enough to be able to import a grandparent to, to watch her while she did virtual preschool, which I'm here to tell you is not a thing. I mean, they still like, she sits in front of an iPad and like does stuff, but like you basically have to sit there with her and do stuff. Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, if you ever wanted to go back to preschool, then do virtual preschool. But I think it's, it's been contributing to this, like want, want start to 2022. I, I, I agree with you on that first point about like the first week back, the snow being a blessing in disguise. I think the second week for us being virtual was just, I don't blame the teachers or or anything for this, but it was just such a a letdown and and getting to your point that you were making before I disrupted you. Like it's just really disruptive. Yeah. And, and I think it's, Important to say, and there was a brief mention of this in this late article, I think they probably could have mentioned it a little bit more, but that wasn't really the point, but important to stipulate the healthcare system and especially workers in the healthcare system are absolutely getting hit the hardest with this surge again, as they have been throughout the pandemic. And it's not just the doctors, it's not just the nurses and you know the nurse practitioners and the medical assistants, it's also the janitors, it's also the cafeteria workers, it's you know, everyone who's yep. in the healthcare environment is is really feeling this. They were already understaffed. A ton of people are now in hospitals, a huge percentage of them have COVID. Uh, and with there are a lot of scary outcomes too, like a lot of a lot of death, especially in areas where vaccination rates are low. Um and so it, it, you then have, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the workforce in the hospital coming down with COVID as well. And that's just extra strain on the system. That means that hospitals are having to cut back to emergency procedures only. Retail stores and other service providers are having to close. Um, masks and vaccine mandates are, are returning to cities and states as, as is appropriate. Um, and then the CDC, you know, we talked about the, the, the riddles of the CDC, has made some big stumbles, right? So they reduced the mandatory isolation time from 10 days to five days for asymptomatic COVID patients. This was a week or two ago. We got a yeah, lot of that. blowback for that because I mean, on one level, there's some ambiguity in the data. Right. It's not like a, it's not like a cliff that you fall off when it's like safe to interact again. Right. Um, it's not like everyone's automatically good after 10 days, but not five or six or seven. But what did happen is the CEO of Delta Airlines, who I think, you know, fair enough, is feeling emboldened in the Omicron era. Um, <laughs> but he's like the worst has passed <laughs> the, the ceo of delta had asked them to reduce the quarantine time from 10 to 5 days just a couple of days before they made that announcement oh and interesting so, i hadn't heard that yeah so you basically have like the class passions inflamed the the workers rights and, and worker safety passions inflamed which is there are legitimate concerns underneath that for sure and the CDC then responded by starting to put a finer point on it. So it's different if you're vaccinated versus not. It's different if you decide to test yourself or not. And the outcome of all of this is that people who are legitimately experts in this stuff, Bob Wachter, who's the, the head of uh, UCSF's practice, are baffled trying to figure out what to do with this. Yeah, which is, which is wild. I mean, who knows? 
what's going to happen when the CEO of Omicron Airlines uh, shows up at the White House. <laughs> Ultimately, like my my hopeful note that I will make as a final point on this is that our headlights are out. The streetlights have been shot out. We're feeling that something's changing. That thing that's changing could still be the smooth pavement coming under the wheels. Like this could just be a really bumpy way for us to start the process of moving from pandemic to endemic mode. And we knew, you know, from, from the initial reports of Omicron out of South Africa, we knew that there would be a few weeks, maybe even months of scary, painful times. And we are in the middle of that right now. But the fact that so many people are getting this, the fact that the death rate hasn't climbed yet, um, the fact that the antivirals are out there in, and, and have prospects of being out there in force means that we could still come to February, March and be ready to turn a corner in a meaningful way with competent communication from uh, our, our public leaders. And I think there's, there's still some hope there. Yeah, I, I'll put a slightly cynical twist on this as well. I think that 2022 is going to be the the turning point for this. And I don't know if it's like the full pandemic to endemic turning point that, that we're talking about. But like, if President Biden and his people don't get this under control this year, they have very little chance of success in the midterms. I think oh, yeah. we'll talk more about the midterms. I, I feel like this is a very DC thing to do, like frame everything in terms of politics. But like, political leaders are driven in part by politics and this is an election year and it's been a rather inauspicious start to 2022. And, and I'm sure that they know that and they probably want to get not only Omicron, but just kind of COVID in general under control. They want to get the messaging right because if, if the election were tomorrow, then I think it would be a bloodbath for, for Democrats. And, and I don't think that they, they want that. So I think that there's added incentive, maybe I should put it that way, for them to get this right. Hope in cynicism. What a way to close that out. Hope in cynicism. Uh, you hear it here on, on News and Brews. So we're, we're in a, a new season now of News and Brews for 2022. I think it's time, Errol, to retire the claim of fixing it at the end of every episode and just assume that people know that we're fixing it going yeah. forward. That's, that should definitely be an assumption. We should um, just say it at the at the front, like we just. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I want to close out with what we'll call hot tips as a working title. You know, that's like our mystic spiral. Maybe we'll come back and change the name. Yeah, but, welcome thoughts from listeners. Uh, but you and I both have day jobs that are not really related to this podcast, um, and you and I both are consuming a lot of content, both for those jobs and just as being people who are interested in the world uh, in the age of, you know, the level of access to information we have. And so I thought that we could start closing out each episode with a recommendation of something that we've read or watched or listened to or just a person we've come across that's worth a follow or whatever it may be in the last week um, and share that with our listeners. So do you want to kick that off for this week? Definitely. I, I had two options for this week, and I'll tell you which one I didn't choose the first. <laughs> the, the New York Times did this 52 places to visit, but it, it had like an environmental spin to this. Did you hmm. see this, Mike? No, I didn't see it. So they, they always do like the 52 places to travel to or whatever. And it, I always read it with earnest and kind of 
vicariously travel through their reporters. But it just was was interesting that it was essentially a call to travel to all of these places that are doing well or, or doing something that is environmentally sensitive. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then I thought, and I was like, you know, it's not environmentally sensitive, taking an airplane to Vanuatu. <laughs> Um, so, so I was like, I'm, I'm going to choose not to do that one. Instead, uh, one of my friends, Francis Brown and her colleague, Tom Carruthers, uh, wrote, uh, what I think is a really important piece in foreign affairs, which for foreign policy wonks, foreign affairs is, is kind of the pinnacle, uh, journal slash magazine slash whatever. And her article is entitled democracy talk is cheap. Concrete action is the only way Biden can turn back the illiberal tide. And it's less about sort of the democracy stuff that we've been talking about domestically and more about kind of global democracy coming on the heels of the the Biden administration summit for democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're now in this sort of year of action that the the administration has presented and, and now talked about. And I think it was just kind of a clarion call to, to actually put some meat on the bones and not just say like, oh, we're going to, you know, support democracy in Ukraine or, or Georgia or Kazakhstan or whatever, but actually, you know, do something about it and, and take action. And so I definitely commend that. And we will link that uh, to folks uh, in the show notes. Excellent. I uh, read a really fun book and useful book over the holiday uh, that is also related to my day job. So as, as a lot of people know, um, I work for a company called First 90. Uh, we build software that helps people change habits, uh, specifically at work and, and build new habits to, uh, to be more successful and fulfilled. And so there's a lot of really interesting behavioral science, habit science out there. And there's a great contribution to that field that came out in 2021 called How to Change. It's written by Katie Milkman, who's a Wharton professor. And um, just kind of make in a really accessible way, talks about some tools and builds on a lot of prior research in how to really build new habits effectively in a way that sticks. And you know, one, one good example is she talks about New Year's resolutions, which I thought was timely for this episode, and how there's this kind of often bandied about talking point that, you know, 80% of New Year's resolutions uh, don't stick. But what that really means and the insight she, that Katie Milkman had is that 20%, one in five New Year's resolutions- Do stick. Do stick. These, and this is just you know commitments that people make at, for a totally arbitrary date on a calendar with no yeah. other change in their lives. And 20% of people are able to change their behavior in a lasting way, which is actually quite impressive. And the, the insight that comes out of that is that a feeling of a fresh start. Uh, is actually uh, hugely motivating for people to change their routines and just change the way they approach things in their daily lives. And so mm-hmm. I will end by wishing everyone a fresh start, uh, if not exactly on the new year, sometime this year in 2022, as we get past all of this nonsense. Here, here. Great to see you, Mike. Pleasure as always, Aaron. See you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabake. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Wednesday, January 12th, 2022 at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.